0: We've all made some bad choices in life, I know I have. When I was 23 years old, I had just moved to Los Angeles and around that age is when a lot of guys start going to Vegas. You know, that's, they make that Vegas trip, you got a couple bucks in your pocket, you're 21. So all these groups of friends of mine would go to Vegas and I would just think, oh, it's only five hours away, I'll go to Vegas, it's free. And then I looked at my bank account at the end of the year and it was virtually empty. So that's a bad decision, but this is not about me, it's about you. Don't make where you play fantasy football a bad life decision. Play Yahoo Fantasy Football. Yahoo offers up free expert advice. It has the best player experience, and you'll never delete your league history like other apps. Yahoo has all kinds of fantasy games, like the new Best Ball. Just draft, and you're done. No trades, no waivers, no drama all season. Yahoo is the number one rated app by the FSGA. Make better choices. Choose Yahoo Fantasy Football. Welcome to the Ringer NFL Show. I'm Robert Mays, joined as always by Kevin Clark. How you doing, buddy? It's time. It's time. We it's are time. a week away. The next camp. time we record a podcast, I'll be on the road. You will. You will be on the road. I will not quite be on the road. I leave next Friday uh, to start my Midwest swing. You will already be. You'll be in some far-flung place in the United States as you kind of the start Amer- the, the American South. Yes, that's be a good, my a good guess place to start. I will eventually get there from... in August. So we'll do our normal thing. We'll be crisscrossing around the country and never being in the same place despite that's crossing ships we in, in the in, night We were in often. Nashville together last year. I don't think that's happening this year, which is unfortunate. It'll happen. Yeah, well, you'll somehow change your trip and we'll end up being in the same place on the same day. We uh, are doing the next in our big picture shows this, uh, today. We are doing the strategy show. With one Warren the coaches Sharp. show? What are we calling it? It's, it's the it's strategy a show. Well, Decision-making, strategy. Who's in charge of strategy? Yeah, I mean, it's it, we're talking about, you know, choices that coaches make, you know, different ways to approach different down and distances, personnel packages, all that kind of stuff that Warren does extremely well. His uh, annual football preview came out recently. You should go grab that. Kevin wrote the forward. We're going to ask Warren a ton of questions about Pretty much everything we're interested in in that realm. But before we get there, Kevin and I are opening the show today by talking about the one thing the football internet loves more than anything else, and that is running back value debates. Kevin wrote about it today, The Grim Future of Running Back Contract Negotiations. You should absolutely go read it on the ringer.com. It's an excellent read, and it is just the next step in this conversation that never seems to end about whether running backs will get paid, whether they should. Casey, why don't you lay out what you wrote for me, and then we can just go from there.
1: Sure. So, I wrote, I talked to Todd Gurley last week. I talked to actually a handful of of star running backs, but only included Gurley in this. And he was, he sounded fairly frustrated. At the As comp- a man
0: who's already been paid, he's fairly yeah, frustrated.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that when you look at the earning potential of a guy like Todd Gurley, if you were born in 1980, it's a totally different situation. Uh, Emmett Smith made over $60 million, okay? And the salary cap has risen $100 million since Emmett Smith left the league. And there's very, very, very few running backs who will make sixty million dollars who are in the NFL. I'm talking even guys like Gurley signed a, a sixty million dollar deal. Um, whether or not he realizes all of that is is to be seen. Um, he he might get there. Frank Gore has made sixty million, but he basically just outlasted everybody. Adrian Peterson made about hundred million dollars, and I I do not see a running back ever making a hundred million dollars ever again unless. I I don't I don't even know. Can you? I mean, like, I, I can't even imagine a situation in which a running back make like hundred million dollars.
0: No, I don't. I I, mean, I,
1: I, I'm trying Peterson to. I'm, r- I'm like one. I'm trying to think of, of some crazy hypothetical situation. Just not going
0: to happen. I don't think it is either. In, no, in in, in in a way, it's not going to happen because the Todd Gurley contract, the one that right. just was this massive deal, is now a mark in the negative column for giving your running back a contract. Right. And so
1: so, so it, what I wrote today was essentially that you have guys like Melvin Gordon who who aren't, they aren't not valuable. They're valuable to their teams. We just have so much data that they are replaceable. The, the Chargers are going to draw a line in the sand and say, you're not worth more than X. Now, Melvin Gordon's most comparable people, according to our Pro Football Focus, are people like Clinton Portis and Maurice Jones-Drew. Those guys made tens of millions of dollars. It's not that NFL anymore. So even though he plays like those guys, he won't get paid like those guys. So what I laid out today on the ringer.com was essentially that the future of running back negotiations is probably grimmer than we think. Even guys like Zeke Elliott, Melvin Gordon, they're going to fall victim to the fact that we just know a lot about that position. And we know how what efficient team building is. And I think there is, even though we know how to build a football team in a lot of ways, uh, that is going to be deeply crappy for running backs. And it's not, I understand the free market and all that, but in the salary cap, that, the salary cap area, that's that's not really the case. I think it's just, it's there's going to be a reckoning with how unfair it is to play the running back position because even a guy like Alvin Kamara, who's so valuable and makes that Saints offense go in a lot of ways and passing to the running backs more important than ever. Play action is more important than ever. Um, these things are really, really important, and those guys won't be compensated for it. There's not really a solution to it because, quite frankly, it's smart not to play running backs, but again, it sucks to be a running back, and we're going to see that played out in many, many negotiations going
0: forward. It's a huge bummer, and I remember I wrote about this last summer. I kind of wrote something about how... And it was the guy said, it was the enduring allure of the franchise running back, and it's because... You think back to those Emmitt Smith guys, the guys even before that, Walter Payton, Jim Brown, Barry Sanders, in a way, they were football. I remember talking to Gary Brown, the Cowboys running backs coach last year, and we were just discussing the position and kind of the aesthetics of it. And he said to me, it's what football is. It's purely the game where I'm going to give you the ball and I'm going to run past you. And these guys who play that position, I think they have that in their minds still. And they just think about the pounding they endure. And just the overall punishment you have to take playing that position down in, down out. And to them, it's like that's valuable. And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, that's what makes it invaluable. The way the game has shifted, we have found out that passing is more efficient than running. It's just hard to run the ball. No single guy is good enough to overcome the inefficiency of running the ball. So what happens is you eventually derive value from your running backs from guys who catch the ball as well. So let's think about Melvin Gordon, for instance. He's a really good pass receiver. His ability to do stuff in space after he catches the ball, everything else, is phenomenal to watch. He is just aesthetically, again, a wonderful player to take in. But you look at the numbers, and Austin Eckler was more efficient as a receiver last year than Melvin Gordon. He was fourth in receiving DOA among running backs. Look at the Chiefs. DVOA. How good,
1: Doa is dead on arrival, which is
0: which might as well excuse as me. Well, that's a yeah. that is a telling miss that is a telling uh, miscommunication there. Slip. So I and then you look at the Chiefs. Kareem Hunt was the most efficient pass catching running back in the NFL last season. You could say that's him. He's very good at that element of the game. He probably is pretty good at it. But then you go look at guys who didn't quite hit the numbers to be in the, the top group but were pack, backs the caught 25 or less passes the number 2 one and two guys in DYAR according to football outsiders were Spencer Ware and Damian Williams the best part of the running back passing game of the Kansas City Chiefs is not any any running back it's Andy Reid by nature The way the game has changed and what we ask of these guys, the system is more important than the individual players at that position.
1: I understand. I know that's
0: bleak, but it's just the position. It's where we've reached. It's where we are now. It's undeniable.
1: I understand what you're saying about Andy Reid being the most important cog in the running back machine in Kansas City. But now I cannot get the image out of my head of Andy, Andy <laughs> Reid playing running back for the Kansas City Chiefs, just lumbering down. I feel like maybe Chris Berman's narrating.
0: Oh yeah, he absolutely yeah. is. Chris if, Berman's narrating. Mind, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So if Andy Reid was the running back for the Chiefs and he ran one of those screens, how many yards could he gain? Would it be a positive play? Oh wow. Yeah, it would be
1: a positive play. I'd say he get. I'd say a perfectly designed screen pass. Could get
0: you four yards. And that's the problem with all of this, is that it doesn't matter how singularly talented any one of these guys is. For the most part, the way the game is played now, it's more about where you're plugging in those guys than how talented those guys are. And that sucks. I hate that. You know, there was a time, I, even as recently as last year, where I was really trying to hold on to this. Because in my mind, Why? it was just so tough. Because it just, I love the position so much. I love the history of position so much. Well, I'd also it's say, tough. by the
1: way, I'd also say that it's important to note that at high school and college, running backs still dominate. So there's a reason, there's a reason they exist.
0: So I talked to a lot of high school coaches last year about this. And it, it, uh-huh. in running, in, in college especially, Rushing efficiency is a huge part of why this happens, but then you get to the league and it changes. So it's tough, man. I don't know what the solution is. I think that more guys are going to end up trying to not play running back. I think that we've already seen that happen. Guys just changing positions early on in order to get ahead of this, but it's difficult because... How hard is it to make a college team? How hard is it to get playing time on a college team? It's immensely difficult. Guys cannot think with their NFL futures in mind, for the most part, because not that many guys are that good.
1: I have a solution that works for everybody.
0: Okay, lay lay, it out out for me. Let's hear it.
1: We take all the great athletes who are going to play running back. There will still be running backs. They just won't be as good. We just take all those guys and we make them soccer players. Do we win the World Cup? (laughs) <laughs> do we win the World Cup if I think we have Alvin Kamara? Swing guys on that. No, I just we get them when they're eight, and we say, "You look like you're going to be five eleven. You look like you're fast. You have great feet. You can do everything. Great vision. Let's get you in some soccer cleats. We win the World Cup. Great.
0: If we thank Craig, Craig can just, make that work producer just
1: producer to Yel. Well, f- financially, they're going to make hundreds of millions of dollars.
0: I guess so. I mean, yeah, if okay, that's fine. They're playing in Europe. Imagine, imagine
1: case. solving two sports like I just did.
0: <laughs> so if you're one of these guys and if your team's in the NFL right now, and you're looking at Movin Gordon, is it worth trading for a guy in the last year or two of that rookie deal? And then maybe just discarding him? Is that not what they should do? Is that somehow bleaker than what we've discussed before? I don't know what teams in the league, how they should approach this when it comes to guys like Melvin Gordon. So you
1: and I talked this morning, spoiler alert, we were talking this morning, and we discussed, okay, well, you trade Melvin Gordon, right? That's that's one of the solutions. If you don't value Melvin Gordon and you don't want to give him an extension, just trade him. But every team that values a running back seems to have valued a running back so much they have running back. Yep. Like, what's the team that's like, we love... Like, the Seahawks have invested a ton in running backs. They're probably not necessarily going to do it. They, they took a first on running back last year. The Panthers... Marty. Herney the team that comes to mind Panthers. for me
0: would be Detroit. What about I the Bucks? The-
1: Arian says he wouldn't want, he doesn't want, or he doesn't need a great running back. But yeah, that's, having Melvin Gordon is better than not having Melvin Gordon.
0: That's fine. I mean, I think that if you want to do that, that's okay. But I, I, that's, again, in terms of how his system has always worked, I think they paid David Johnson because he was David Johnson and it just worked out that way. I think if we're up to see, you can just plug a guy in there. So I don't know. I, I don't think that there's a lot of uh, people in the league that are motivated to go get a guy like that. What about Ezekiel Elliott? Yeah, that was going mean, to say. How that's does this my next eventually question. play out?
1: I don't know. So Charles Robinson has a report. He thinks that negotiations have the chance, have the chance, not saying they will have the chance to go sideways. And I think we all kind of know what that means. And and now that we've had so many running back negotiations, it can get ugly pretty fast. And I don't know the answer because, you know, I saw some numbers last year, I'm oh, sorry, um, yesterday, a uh, pretty big difference between last year and yesterday um, about how much Amari Cooper has helped Ezekiel Elliott and Elliott's success rate once Amari Cooper came. So you've got to pay Dak, Elliott, Cooper, Byron Jones, Demarcus Lawrence. Jalen Smith. Jalen Smith. You already have, you're already going to blow through, I'm sure, Mays, I'm sure you know this, already going to blow through the most expensive offensive line in the history of football. Are you aware of that? They're, oh they're, yeah, they're, they're just literally like they're. I, I saw a stat the other day. They're just gonna just run. They're just gonna own the second most expensive line in the history of um, of
0: football. So I mean, they paid everybody except for one guy. I mean, it, it's it gets Everybody's that way. Everybody's
1: getting paid. Everybody's getting paid. So where do you draw the line? I would draw the line at the running back. But I'm not Jerry. So Jones. if
0: you're a team, they by the way took Demarco Murray.
1: They ran him into the ground. Let him go. To the Titans. His career was over.
0: I think that's and so that's the thing is we. I mean, I think Zeke is a little bit different in terms of how much he's attached to the franchise. Everything else, well, the I mean, draft capital, for,
1: the draft capital, exactly.
0: Thing. So I, I mean, that's a huge part of it to me. I feel like this is a thing where it's gonna like what, was, what happened with Jay Ajayi with the Eagles, right? Uh-huh. He was a fifth round pick, but a guy that was and entering the final year of his rookie deal, Philly says, "Let's go get somebody that can put us over the top." If teams that have The cap space, it just seems like maybe running backs eventually become that, where you play to the end of your rookie deal, maybe you get dealt somewhere else because somebody doesn't want to pay you and they're trying to recoup some of the draft capital, and then you're kind of left to toil on your second contract. I mean, is Ezekiel Elliott on track for the Todd Gurley contract? I would say absolutely not. Is there any way you can give that contract to anybody anymore? And that's depressing, but it just seems like we've reached that point. I will say this.
1: I was going to ask if we've seen the last sort of $50 million, $60 million contract. And then I remembered that Marty Herney is the GM of the Panthers and Christian McCaffrey's
0: coming up. So we already know that's going to happen. Maybe he's the last one. Maybe he's the $100 million man. Yeah, $200. He's going to get the Mike Trout contract. Well, they can't just give one guy one of those deals. They got to do two. So oh, unfortunately, oh. it's going to have to be McCaffrey and somebody Curtis else. Curtis Samuel? He's a receiver, though. That doesn't count.
1: Well, I mean, he can play. I I was just thinking about guys they can kind of throw money at.
0: I'm sure that there are a lot of people behind the scenes making smart decisions with Carolina. But can we talk for two seconds about the Marty Herney reclamation tour? The Panthers had an awesome offseason. They've had two really good offseasons in a row. I I don't know what to make of this.
1: He's back, baby. Maybe he's like the poor man's Howie Roseman. He oh, just man. spent he just spent the years out learning about football, and now he's unstoppable.
0: All right, now that we're done with that very, but except, it, Howie Roseman, like went
1: around and like met with Steve Kerr, and I think Marty Herney just hosted like a radio show. So,
0: which you can learn a lot from. I mean, I, I'm sure I could just be a second t- our second run GM now because I've done this podcast for a little while.
1: If you were the Texans GM this year,
0: would they would there be any difference in the wins and losses? I'm not sure if there would be because I'm not sure anyone. That's a ghost ship for the most part, I want to say. I mean, the Texans, I wrote about this last week. They have so many guys that you probably should consider moving or trying to go get somebody else. Like, if you're the Texans, why wouldn't you go trade for Melvin Gordon? Isn't that the perfect team? Texans,
1: they have Lamar Miller.
0: They have Lamar Miller and a ton of cap space. They have the second most cap space in the NFL except for the Colts. That's the perfect team. Why
1: don't the Colts just do it? Who cares?
0: The Colts aren't going to do that. I feel okay. like the Colts are never going to pay a running back. Also, Marlon Mack was pretty no, good. You don't, last year by the for way, that. you don't have to pay him. But you're still paying that guy a decent amount of money on his No, I know what option. you're saying. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it, comparatively, Melvin Gordon is going to make. Let's see here. Melvin Gordon's contract this year compared to other running backs in the NFL, he will have the 11th biggest cap hit in the league this year. And he's on his first contract. Yeah. Tough one. I mean, one. that's. Not tiny. I mean, that's comparatively to the league. That's like he's almost a top 10 running back, and he's on a rookie deal. That's what happens when you take these guys in the first round at a position that's become so depressed. So, But I still think a team like the Texans, that's the right move. But Houston has all these guys on the final year of their deal, or they have this cap space. This is the time of year where you can kind of put yourself over the top. It's exactly what you're saying. That's the perfect team but you think anybody is in Houston like making phone calls left and right right now trying to accrue talent? Doesn't seem like it.
1: Uh, it. It doesn't seem like it's happening.
0: Yeah, and the fact that they have to play against to compete against teams like the Eagles and the Rams and the Patriots probably does not bode well for them. Because those guys are making those calls, I promise you. Chris Ballard's like a top three GM. Yeah, and he's in their division. So, good. It's going great over there. All right. We're going to get to Warren, and we are going to discuss some football strategy here. And we are now thrilled to welcome an old friend of the show, someone whose work I cite on—I don't know—a daily basis. It's—it's it's pretty close to that at the very least. Warren Sharp, thank you so much for doing this, man. We appreciate it.
2: Yeah, I love you guys' content. Uh, you guys have one of the best podcasts out there, in my opinion, for NFL information. So, always happy to join you. Awesome. So,
1: Warren, let's start here. We talked a lot last year about some of the stuff you've been talking about for years running the ball in first down is inefficient yet teams still do that way too much um there's just a lot of bad coaching decisions all around when you zero in on 2019 what is the biggest mistake coaches are still making in in mass and who are the biggest offenders right now on your on your bad coaching list
2: you're talking about what I think they'll do this upcoming season? Yeah.
1: What, 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 is, what is the one thing you're watching where you're saying, okay, the smart teams will do this this year, and the dumb teams will do this?
2: Yeah, I think one of the interesting things is, is watching to see how if, if teams are going to act a little bit more aggressively earlier in games to try to gain those leads, as yeah. opposed to the teams that seem a little bit more comfortable letting things play out and keeping the game a little bit close. Um, you know, it's a frustration that I've seen uh, watching teams like the Titans and teams like the Seahawks uh, just kind of like hang around in games with their opponent, as opposed to really trying to get that upper hand and force their opponent at halftime to change strategies. And one of the things I think a lot of people don't realize, uh, of course, some of this is cause and effect. The better team is more likely to have a lead and more likely to win the game. But teams that have a lead at halftime are just over 80% likely to win that game. So you really have to do your best to try to establish your lead early in those games and impose your will on that opponent. Um, And so that's certainly one thing, uh, you know, just just the overall strategy in terms of aggression, how aggressive are offensive coaches out of the gate? Um, I would like to see more teams be more aggressive, try to go down the field, effectively. And and everybody wants to always score touchdowns. Don't get me wrong, but uh, some teams are a little bit more uh, satisfied with just playing a field position game to start the game as long as they don't make mistakes.
0: Is there, I mean, last year, over the last couple of years, I feel like one of the things that you've harped on is just throwing on first and first and 10 and not running on second and 10. If you throw it in completion, I think those are kind of the two of the pillars of a lot of the stuff that you've done. Is there a down and distance decision? coming this season that you feel like could be a newer version of that, that you feel like more teams are going to utilize and more teams are going to take advantage of just to gain kind of a subtle advantage?
2: Well, you know, the thing that I'm always curious with, so I'm, I'm big, as you guys know, on early down efficiency, just bypass yep. third down altogether. Um, and that's why passing on first downs is so uh, important to that strategy. It's why uh, even throwing the football to your running backs is a much better decision on those downs than handing the ball to those running backs. Um, And we've seen coaches with like two of the best head coaches in the league, Sean Payton and Bill Belichick with two of the best quarterbacks in the league and Tom Brady and Drew Brees. They're the ones leading the NFL in pass rate to running backs on early down. Um, So if they're doing it, other teams hopefully will copy that a little bit more often. It's better than these handoffs that we're seeing. The curiosity I think maybe that I will run into is you know, when teams do get forced into those third downs, what I would, obviously we all want to see more teams go for it on fourth down. And we know that when you throw it short of the sticks on third down, you're very unlikely to convert that first down. But if defenses are defending kind of playing to the sticks a little bit, I would like to see if there's a new strategy where certain teams, when they are in, unfortunately in a third down situation, will intentionally throw the ball and create a play that will put them in a fourth and makeable situation that then they automatically just keep their offense out there. And just, it's a no brainer. We're going to go for it. I think that type of strategy on like a third and long where the defense is in, um, you know, it's playing a a more obvious passing situation. And then you're able to keep that same pass oriented defense on the field. while now you're in a fourth and short, and then you can run the ball on them if you so choose uh, would really be a benefit Uh, as opposed to teams trying to be in those third and long situations and just trying to convert a first down um, on that particular down.
0: One of the things I read in your book this year that I I found fascinating was in the Packers' kind of one analytical bit section where you were talking about on their third downs, they were throwing the ball way further past the sticks than they needed to. So in your mind, you feel like there's an efficiency to be gained by throwing a little bit short of the sticks on third down and letting guys get first downs, because that seems counterintuitive to me. But if the numbers bear that out, I I find that fascinating.
2: Yeah, it it all depends, in my opinion, um, if we're talking about, are you talking about the ability to convert on the fourth down, or are you talking about the ability to convert on that same third down?
0: You were talking about third and fourth and shorter for the Packers. And you were talking about, and I think you wrote that getting the ball a little bit short of the sticks there and letting your guys kind of run for a first down actually makes sense. Maybe I read that wrong, but I thought that's what the message was.
2: Uh, well, what the Packers were doing on those third and short type situations is they were throwing the ball way beyond the sticks. And okay. and the, the idea on those down and distances um, is that they converted only 42% of those passes for first downs. Uh, whereas, when they threw the ball short of the six, you're right. 70% of those shorter passes were converted into first down. So in their situation um, on the third and short, it it was at a much higher success rate. And of course they're not looking at this type of information, but my, my philosophy offensively always is you got to mix in some shot plays, but it's get that first down. So I don't care if you're throwing the ball 20 yards down the field, if you're not going to go for it on that fourth down, that past 20 yards down the field has a very low probability of recording a first down. I would much rather you look at your own analytics and figure out that, hey, we're actually converting a significantly higher rate when we're short of the sticks. Let's try to build a little bit more of that into our game plan.
1: Warren, you're good at analyzing a lot of things. And one of the things obviously we're focusing on here is coaching decisions. We know that Belichick is a good coach. We know that on the whole, Pete Carroll, Andy Reid, those guys are good coaches. Who's the best coach we don't talk about when we talk? When you look at the decisions that are made, the way they operate, who's the best coach we don't have on that set of sort of Mount Rushmore of 2018, 2019 coaches?
2: I don't know if he's on the Mount Rushmore, but to throw a name up that nobody really talks about prevalently, uh, he actually wasn't even this team's first option at head coach when they needed to replace their coach. Uh, he kind of got brought involved uh, later once Josh McDaniels backed out. That's Frank Wright for the Indianapolis Colts. Um, I was really, obviously we know what he did in Philadelphia for a short time as a coordinator. I was very impressed with the way that he orchestrated that offense last season. I mean, if you recall this time last year, Andrew Luck hadn't even thrown a pass. It was like 500 some days before he'd even attempted between when he actually threw a pass in the league. And everybody was talking about, is this guy ever going to play again? And what does Frank Wright do? He comes out, And he has Andrew Luck throwing tons of short passes. You know, most coaches might come and be like, we need to run the ball more. We need to protect our quarterback. But Reich, I think, probably knew that by doing that, he would put his quarterback in a lot more situations that are obvious passing downs in third and long. And so Reich avoided that. He also had to adapt his offense a ton. We know that he loves to use a lot of 12 personnel with two tight end sets. But then Jack Doyle goes out and gets injured. And what does he do? He uses a ton of 11 personnel and does so pretty efficient, efficiently. And if you look at that roster of wide receivers, you know, most coaching go, like, "Man, I don't want these wide receivers out on the field. But the reality is he was able to uh, efficiently get a lot out of that offense. Um, I really think that he's a guy who is in tune with the way that the league is headed. That's kind of one of the things I look for in coaches is, you know, are they like resisting the tide a little bit? Are they trying to like, Day one step ahead. Are they willing to adapt their offense to their personnel, but in, this, in the same mindset, have a really good understanding of what are the most efficient things that teams in 2019 are doing based upon the rules that are going to give them the most leverage to win this game. And I think he combines like a great foundation with really good adaptability. Um, and I think he's a guy that I, you know I wouldn't say he's on the Mount Rushmore today, But I think, you know, in a few years, maybe he
0: could get there. What the Colts did with Reich, and then also I think what the Bears did with Nagy, when you consider how much, how many fewer yards they had to go on third down when they were the worst team in the league before he got there, just that importance of coaching. You've written about that so extensively. Is there some team this year with a new coach that you feel like their decision making palette? is just going to give them a much bigger advantage than what they had last season. Just a first year guy that you think has a chance to be transformative. Like those guys were.
2: It's, it's tough. Um, obviously the guy who's got like the, the most, um, uh, I don't want to say upside, but like the most potential because it's a totally clean slate and nobody really knows exactly how it's going to work. is Cliff Kingsbury out in Arizona because he's implementing a, a, a system that has seen a little bit. Uh, I mean, you guys have written about it, you know, not, a ton of it has been incorporated into the NFL game, like as a team totally running this offensive scheme, um, but that in bits and pieces, some of it has worked in the past. So I'm excited to see what he's going to do um, there. You know, one of the things it it is always neat to try to kind of look at some of those guys and see what they're going to ultimately uh, bring to their team and, and the style, you know, offensive coaches, offensive minded coaches are in vogue right now. I'm kind of curious too about like these second year coaches, just like second year, uh, second year, uh, quarterback where they really grow a lot from one year to the next. Like, I'm also curious as to like, what are these second year guys who didn't have a great season in year one, what are they going to do differently? Are they just going to continue to do the same types of things? So that's what I love about the NFL right now. Yes, we've got a bunch of like stalwarts and guys who have been there for a while and and, and have systems and schemes that are successful, but so much of the league, I think it's almost fifty percent of the league, has you know, coordinators that are in their first year or second year of calling plays for this offense. And so there's going to be a lot of things we're gonna have to stay on our toes as analysts and you guys as well to try to figure out and keep up with what are these guys doing, what's successful, and how much are they are going to be willing to adapt.
1: Hey, Warren, you know, we talked earlier in the show about running back value and Melvin Gordon, obviously is not going to get a big contract. Zeke Elliott it remains to be seen what Jerry does with him. If you were running a team, obviously the run game has been proven at the very least running backs are generally replaceable. How would you approach having a star running back like that? And what decisions would you make if you had a Zeke or a Melvin Gordon or even a, even an Alvin Kamara down the road?
2: It's tough. Right. I mean, even if you because we know that all guys that are drafted at the top of the draft um, don't necessarily work out. And we also know that there's value that's found later in the draft. So you could you could do like the Patriots style where you end up drafting guys later, you know, later in the first round and, and as a running back but that guy could end up terrorizing the league. And so then you're in the same exact predicament of, are we going to have to pay this guy? Because he's clearly like one of the best in the NFL. It's a tough spot to be in as a, as a GM and um, as a head coach who's weighing in on this. I personally think that um, with the way that teams are kind of building up, we see it a lot in the NFL right now where teams are, um, I don't want to say they're mortgaging their future, but they understand the value of these quarterback windows with those rookie deal contracts and those four years, and so they're really like in these arms races to amass talent in order to like put themselves in position to win. While this guy, before we have to pay our quarterback, um, if you're one of those uh, teams that's outside of that group that has a really good running back like a Zeke, uh, it might be intriguing to try to trade him. To one of those teams that's looking to amass as much talent for a shot at the crown and get some future draft capital out of that uh, team. Now we know that some of the best teams that are in those situations, like you know the Eagles and whatnot, maybe they wouldn't really mortgage enough that you feel comfortable with. But I kind of I would not feel comfortable paying one of those running backs. I just do not feel comfortable and. I don't blame them for trying to maximize their value and doing what they want to do and sit out and all those types of things. That's their prerogative. And I respect anybody who's going to put their body through the brutality that NFL running backs have to go through. But um, when we're working in a salary cap world and I'm running a team, I'm not going to give this guy a lucrative number two or number three contract. And instead I would rather have him build up his value here and then, you know, in a Zeke situation, a year or two before, trade him um, if there's a suitor that you could convince uh, to, to give you enough capital that it makes it worth your while.
0: Staying on the backfield a little bit here, you know, you, I've, I'm a big fan of this, and I know you are as well, just kind of the smarter teams in the league using a fullback more often and how it contributes to both the running game and the passing game. And those numbers are skewed intensely by the Niners and the Patriots. I think both of us believe that those two guys and their offensive play callers are two of the smartest guys in the league when it comes to all this stuff. Do you feel like that model or just that tendency is something more teams can and should use? Or do you think that McDaniels and Shanahan are such outliers when it comes to creativity that other teams can kind of get bogged down if they put one more of those big bodies on the field?
2: Yeah, it's a great question because, um, you know, it's a challenge when you look around the league and you look at the 32 head coaches, some of them are calling their own plays. And so there's less than 32 true offensive coordinators. Um, you know, there, there are some really great geniuses out there, but then there's a lot of guys. I'm not going to suggest that I'm you know, better than anybody else. I'm just saying that like, there are some guys that really don't seem like they've got the right mentality. Um, and, and it, it's a challenge to expect everybody To measure up, right, to the Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniels and Kyle Shanahan's out there to be able to design an offense that's going to function correctly with those types of bodies. But the metrics don't lie, the statistics don't lie, that it is more efficient to pass the football out of run sets than run the football out of pass sets. And when you have 21 or 12 personnel out there, um, it's very, it makes things very easy for that. Offensive coach to be able to dictate to the defense uh, by keeping the same personal out there, but there's so much that they can do with that personnel, um, especially when you've got a fullback like Kyle has out in uh, San Francisco. So uh, I think one of the things that more offenses need to realize is to try to have that deception um, and keep that close, hold that close to your vest because it's like. Uh, chips in poker, like when you kind of become a little bit too predictable or based on your personnel that you've got out on the field, the defense sort of has a really good understanding of what you're going to do. You're basically pushing some of those chips and giving them to the defense uh, and you're losing some of that offensive leverage that you should be keeping and holding tight. But when you use those heavier personnel sets, and then you can be very multiple and creative out of them. I think it absolutely is something that more teams might want to investigate. Um, I don't know about like going all in on that, like to the level and the rate that those two teams are doing, but more, you know, passing is more efficient. We know that. And so what are teams doing is they're just increasing the number of 11 personnel and everybody's doing it out there. And so defenses are building themselves a little bit more to defend 11 personnel. So it makes in, makes total sense to try to go against the grain a little bit, and yeah, we're going to pass more, but we're going to do it out of 12 or 21, and we're going to keep that extra linebacker out on the field and try to take advantage of him in the pass game.
1: So Mays and I have gone back and forth on the types of coaches you should be hiring now in this era. and. My feeling is that eventually there's so many offensive hires per cycle now that eventually you're, you're going to get stuck with the lemon. And I feel like the best defensive or special teams coordinator or even position coach might be better than the sixth, seventh or eighth best offensive coach. Warren, you study this probably more than anybody, just as far as coaching and the decision making and all that. Uh, do you agree with the sort of we have to hire an offensive guy you know mazes position has been you know if if you don't hire a good play caller as your head coach and you have a great coordinator you'll just lose him in one year to head coaching anyway so you might as well make him the great play caller how would you do it if you were running a team would you only go offense would you kind of look for the inefficiency how would you approach that more
2: right well you guys are absolutely right because this is a really difficult decision. Um, you, you don't want to be, you don't want to be in a situation where you're losing uh, a great creative offensive coordinator. Um, that is the most important, in my opinion, if, if it's not your head coach calling plays, like the person calling your offensive play, uh obviously like, you know, Nagy was there in Chicago, but Vic Fangio was one of the most important, sorry, May's defensive coordinators in the league from a play calling position, uh, last season. Um, and so, you know, he obviously has tremendous value, but I think the offensive coaches have so much value right now with the fingerprints that they put all over the team's offense. And that bleeds into the defense and special teams and everything else that that side of the ball is so important. Um, but I wouldn't just go after like you know a, a recycled guy just to have an offensive guy in there if he's like your seventh choice. Um, there are a lot of coordinators who could become great offensive coaches down the road that are not in that position yet um, and may not be ready for all the responsibilities that I mean the head coaches, you guys know you interview them all the time, has tons of responsibilities so Uh, I, what I would be looking, if I don't, let's pretend we're in the scenario where I don't like the offensive coaches, offensive minded coaches that are in the head coaching pool. What I would be looking to do in this case is I would be going after a defensive minded coach. Like the bet, if there's like a really great one out there, I'd be going after that guy. I'd be telling him, you can do everything you want on the defensive side of the ball and run our program. Keep your fingerprints off the offense. I want my offense coordinator to have total creativity on that side of the ball. Obviously, they have to be in agreement on certain things and philosophies, and that's fine. But I want my defense corner to stay out of the offensive room. I want my offensive coordinator to be a guy with a lot of inventive ideas and strategies that he could take and put into the offensive side of the ball. And then what I would do is I would lay into place in his contract ways that he would be able to move into, and obviously, you know, you don't tell the head coaches, I don't know how the contracts specifically work, but ways that he could ultimately move into a head coaching role. Um, And in addition, the best thing about hiring coaches is there's absolutely no salary cap on coaching. So there's nothing to say that you can't pay an offensive coordinator the same amount as your head coach. You know, how that would play out in the, you know, behind the scenes is a, a slightly different matter, but The fact is there's no salary cap on coaching. So um, if if that was the situation I was faced with and I didn't like the offensive-minded head coaches that were out there, that's the strategy that would probably go looking in that pool of offensive coordinators who maybe aren't ready to be head coaches yet, but are really good coordinators uh, or guys who could be moved into coordinator from like a position coach situation.
1: I've always felt that, you know, colleges have sort of adapted and obviously they don't pay the players, so you know, they've got extra cash. Um, but I've, colleges have sort of gotten into the arms race where they'll just pay a coordinator way over market value just to have them because there's no salary cap on, on that. And I'm surprised that in a lot of ways that hasn't happened more with NFL assistants. Um, you know, I think that, that NFL teams are, by and large, probably cheaper than we think with that kind of stuff. But I'm surprised that it hasn't happened that, that teams have just said, okay, we're going to build the super, super, super coaching staff.
2: I, I 100% agree. I mean, I, I think you should be, if you're really trying to win, if you really care about winning and you have a ton of money, most of these owners do, um, why are you not building the best arsenal on the coaching staff? And I'm talking all the way through like your nutritionist. I'm talking about your analytics department. I'm talking about your you know, staff of doctors. I mean, how are the Redskins continually the most injured team in the league for like four straight years, virtually like the most injured? Um, You know, you got to build up and invest in those elements. And because there is no salary cap, it is actually a good way to kind of get above some of your competition. If you have a great offensive line coach, I mean, uh, how valuable is Dante Scarnecchia? really? Like how valuable is he? to the New England Patriots. And um, the fact that they have them and other teams don't, that helps the Patriots. So getting the best guys at different position groups that matter the most and getting guys outside of even the coaching staff, but at other departments is certainly a big edge that some teams um, I think are building towards or could do a little bit better job of, uh, whereas other teams are kind of just stuck in the mire of uh, of just trying to make sure that we don't you know, go two and 14 this year.
0: I think that it's it's funny that you mentioned that because I think the the union, one of the things they're interested in when it comes to the new CBA is actually having a certain amount of money that teams have to devote toward support staff, not coaches, obviously, but personnel, trainers, doctors, facilities. So that you mentioned that, you know, the Redskins are the most injured team in the league. That kind of stuff I think is on people's minds, which I, you know, we'll see how that all plays out, but I know they're thinking about it at the very least. I wanted to ask you, Warren, about when you talk about just these offensive coordinators, is there an offensive coordinator in the league right now that's not a head coach that kind of abides by the things you want them to? That's making the right decisions. That has a good approach for the most part, but has not ascended to that role quite yet.
2: Uh, wow, that's that's a great question. Um, you know, I guess if I'm trying to look for a true up and comer, and I don't have, you know, I don't have the, um, the exact answer for you, but I would, I really am curious about. Todd Monken up in Cleveland. You know, I love Freddie Kitchens. I think Monken can learn a lot under Kitchens. Uh, I know that there's been, you guys might know this better than I do, what the exact situation is there with his role and responsibility. Cause I know at one point there was some questions as to like how much he was going to actually take onto his plate in terms of Mm a play calling perspective. But, um, you know, I really like the aggressive nature um, and some of the efficient things in early down passing that he was doing in Tampa last season. Uh, and so he's definitely a guy that I would kind of throw into the mix as, as somebody who um, I've seen a little bit of uh, and is a little bit of a, a kind of like a newer name out there that a lot of people probably haven't heard about. Um, he, he's a guy that I think is, is, is in that category.
0: When it comes to that situation in Cleveland, I think one of the answers is that, and one of the answers about Todd Monken's, you know, possibilities as a head coach in the future is that Todd Monken's an interesting guy. Yep. Every, everyone I know yeah. that has played for Todd Monken or been around Todd Monken, I remember last year when Ryan Fitzpatrick was really tearing it up. I talked to Brandon Whedon a little bit because he played for Monken in college and just discussing kind of the personality traits that go along with playing for Todd Monkin in a Todd Monkin offense, it's apparently a pretty fascinating experience. So if that gives you any insight into how that might go, that that's probably all I can offer.
2: It is a challenge, you know, working with some of the different personalities out there. And we see how, I mean, Cleveland had a couple personalities on their staff last year on both sides of the ball with uh, Todd Haley and Greg Williams. So, you know, there there's a lot more to just coaching that, uh, You know, it it factors into being able to, like, lead a whole team of 53 men. Um, And and so that does definitely uh, play a role into it.
1: I was just going to wrap up with give us your, I guess, boldest prediction for the 2019 season, having come out with this guide uh, that is as comprehensive as anything on the planet. It includes a one-page forward by yours truly, but that's that's not... (laughs) There's not a ton of info in that particular page. Um, the other couple hundred pages are much more informative. Uh, having done that, what is the the sort of um, the 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 boldest take you've got coming out of it?
2: Well, there's you know it's, there, there's a lot of um, takes that I've got. I think you know you can give, give them all. A, Just fire them off. Fire them off. The boldest the boldest one might be a challenge, but I will throw out one that I think cuts against the grain. Uh, A lot of people um, uh, that I've heard, you know, and I I have my eyes and and ears out there just trying to listen in and absorb things, a lot of people are really uh, down on the Ravens and Lamar Jackson and just worried about what's going to happen with him as a quarterback, as his ability to throw the ball down the field. Uh, But I was actually encouraged by what I saw in that playoff game. It's not just one game, but the way that uh, they realize their mistake of not going to the pass earlier in that game and then forcing everything onto his plate late. And he actually did perform. Now you have better wide receiving weapons uh, in Baltimore this upcoming season, and you have a full off season of prep. It's hard. It's hard to come in there just like Baker did. It's hard to come in there. Now Baker was a stud of course last year, but come in there uh, without getting any first team reps in camp and then suddenly doing this. But remember Lamar after the bye week, like they completely changed everything. So even when he's standing there on the sideline week five and week six, viewing what the offense doing, taking notes, like when he got out there, everything was totally different. So I think that learning curve that he had last year was a real challenge. And I think that it's going to be, I, I think that offense is going to be better than some people think this upcoming season. They play in a really good division overall. Uh, but I think that that team is, is headed uh, for the come up. And then I think, you know, a team that I guess I'm a little bit more down on. Um, nobody's really talking about these two teams as, as far as being great this year. Uh, they never really seem to have bad records either, however. Uh, but one of these two teams is probably going to struggle a lot this year, I think. And that's either the Detroit Lions or the Tennessee Titans. I just, you know, like maybe I'm wrong, but the things that I've heard from Arthur Smith and the suggestions about what he wanted to do with Mariota and this offense uh, carrying over so much from last year, that doesn't encourage me much um, as an analyst. And then when I'm looking at the Detroit lions, I mean, the chapter on the Lions is just, I know they're projected to finish worse than their division, but it was just shocking to see how much Matt Patricia's influence and in the run game uh, and becoming more of like a defensive minded team. like out all over the offensive side of the ball and turned what had been a very efficient passing attack into something that didn't didn't resemble very much of what uh, we come to expect in years past. So I kind of think one of those teams is really going to struggle this year.
0: Both of those teams are teams that have gotten by or skated by at the very least without disaster while making the wrong types of decisions. You know Those teams are not wired the correct way, in my opinion. That's why I don't like watching them. That's why I think that they're just particularly boring. Is there a team that you watched last year when you look at the numbers and the results may not have necessarily been there, but the decision-making was to the point where you think, all right, they're definitely in line for a bump just based on the way that they go about their choices?
2: Oh, this one's a no-brainer to me, real easy. Uh, The San Francisco 49ers, you know, I cannot say enough about how impressed I was with the, you know, there's people in San Francisco who don't like Kyle Shanahan for one reason or another. And I just can't buy that. Like I need more of a sample size because what he's dealt with out there the last couple of years has been nothing short of ridiculous. But this is one of two teams last year that in my early down success rate metric, which is like the most correlated thing to wins and losses in the NFL that I've you know calculated and utilized um, next to turnovers, they finished top 10 offensively and defensively last year. They obviously play in a very difficult division against a very difficult schedule, but the fact that he was able to get that offense to still stay somewhat productive despite the injury situation, despite, you know, his quarterback going down. I just think that that job that Kyle Shanahan did there was tremendous, um, And I'm, you know, I don't necessarily agree and love all of the uh, decisions that they've made from a uh, payroll perspective, you know, um, from from a GM perspective in terms of you know overpaying this running back and overpaying this kicker. But the bottom line is that this is a team; their schedule is tough this upcoming year. So I don't know that they're going to like, you know, just jump to like becoming like a double-digit win juggernaut. But I, if, if anybody, thinks that the 49ers were a 4-12 and team last year um, and they're going to be something close to that this year, they're very mistaken in my opinion. This team was much better than a 4-12 and record last year, and I think they're going to show that this upcoming season.
0: Kevin, you like how I managed to get one more for the Kyle Shanahan hive before we ended the show?
1: That is the theme. of the, this, this podcast one <laughs> is specifically designed for Mays to get into Kyle Shanahan talk. It's a narrative oh, I, pod about Kyle Shanahan.
0: I didn't know he was going to say that, but I had a good inkling that that was going to be his answer, and I just I couldn't think of a better way to end the show. So I'm really glad that we got to get there. I appreciate it, Warren. Thanks for getting me where I want to go.
2: Well, you know, I, who, who are these people that think that he should not be a head coach or that he can't do this or that? Like, I think we need to give him more string to work with out there. Um, I just can't
0: see it. Hey, I love it. That's fine with me. Yeah. I think that's a perfect note on which to end the show. Warren, as always, man, we thank you so much for doing this. Uh, we always learn a ton. It's great to have you on. We'll do it again soon, man.
2: Sounds good, guys. Good luck at training camp.
0: Thanks, man. Awesome. Thanks. Please, everyone, if you have not, go buy Warren's book. If you care about learning about football, you will learn a ton. You get to read Kevin's forward. I could not recommend it more. I seriously cite his stuff on a daily basis when i'm writing so you know the the biggest recommendation possible from us as for the show uh we'll be back next week kevin and we'll be pretty much ready to get going with training camps you and i both you'll be on the road already i'm getting on the road shortly after this is happening let's ride all right thanks guys as always for listening to the ringer nfl show on the ringer podcast network we'll talk to you soon thanks guys